Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We have a Northeast Ohio hero in the corrupt HB6 continuing saga. We're going to talk about that on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Gronowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. It is Friday at last. This has been another long week. Good morning. Okay. Let's move on to the weekend. Is Northeast Ohio's very own Dave Greenspan one of the heroes in the investigation of the $60 million bribery scheme to bail out First Energy's nuclear plants? Jane Cahoon, I know that they're no longer First Energy's nuclear plants, but they were First Energy's nuclear plants when the scheme was going on. So we'll keep calling them that because they're the ones that pushed it. But there was a secret person that was described in the court documents as doing the right thing. A legislator who went to the FBI and provided the texts and things he was getting from the corrupt group. And we now know who it is. <laughs> right. Uh, he is the mysterious Representative Seven, and that is uh, State Rep Dave Greenspan, a Westlake Republican. And he is described in a rather dramatic fashion in the federal criminal complaint. And I, I don't know if he went to the FBI or if they went to him, to be to be honest. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But as he was receiving texts from then speaker Larry Householder, who, as we know, is at the center of this scheme. He was receiving these texts from Householder, leaning on him to vote for House Bill 6, the nuclear bailout. And he happened at the time to be sitting right there with the FBI, uh, with agents from the public corruption unit who were interviewing him. And uh, the reason we know this is, you know, there was a lot of speculation about who Representative Seven was, but Andrew Tobias got some records Thursday through a public records request from the Ohio House, re, you know, requesting Greenspan's texts, and they were identical to the ones depicted in the complaint. So it's it's obviously him. So so he got this text on May twenty eighth, twenty nineteen, and in that text, Householder says. I really need you to vote yes on HB6. It means a lot to me. Can I count on you? And then after Greenspan kind of thoughtfully explains why he couldn't support the legislation, uh, Householder responds, I just want you to remember when I needed you, you weren't there twice. And then apparently at some point, an unnamed intermediary approached Greenspan on behalf of Jeff Longstreth, who was a top Householder aide, who's also been indicted in this case, um, and asked him to delete the texts. But uh, anyway, he shared those messages with the FBI immediately after he received them and gave them screenshots and everything. And the day after he got those texts was the day that the House passed House Bill 6. And he did not vote for it. Look, this was more of a shakedown even than what you described. There was one point when another intermediary went to him and said, you know, your bills won't move unless you do this. And as he tried to explain what his objections were, they basically <laughs> said, we don't care what you think. You know, yeah, just do what that, you're told. 
that was uh, the according to the charging document. That was Neil Clark, a prominent Columbus lobbyist who has also been charged in this case. And yeah, he said, you know, this legislation that that Greenspan was sponsoring, he's told him it's not going to advance unless he voted for House Bill Six. And and you know, when Greenspan tried to explain himself, Clark said. No one cares about your opinion. Right. It's, so so we should say something about Greenspan. You, I, I always like Dave Greenspan. He's a Republican that was on the county council during the one brief shining moment of that government agency, <laughs> which has been a nightmare in every other way. They do nothing. They never do the jobs that they're supposed to do. It's been a huge disappointment. But while he was there, and Laura, you covered him for a while, mm-hmm. he was a reasonable guy, worked across the 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 table he came up with some interesting ideas and the other thing i want to say you know we've elected no end of bums who don't do the right thing so so this is like a bright shining moment in northeast ohio an elected official who did the right thing had integrity represented the people so so now we're up to what two two elected heroes we have dave yost doing the right thing to block First Energy and its subsidiary companies from getting any money out of this scheme. And Dave Greenspan, who did the right thing. Pretty much every other elected official involved still leaving this stinky scheme in place. Everybody in the legislature. So two heroes, one from Northeast Ohio. Laura, you know, you remember working with him. Yes, I, I was a big fan. And not just because he called me back every every time I called him, but he seemed really thoughtful and reasoned. And I think there were three Republicans on the whole council at that point. Um, but they were very congenial. It wasn't this like very partisan split that you see in other government bodies. And so I really respected the way that he thought through things. He always had ideas, was introducing bills. And I really wasn't surprised to see him go on to the state legislature. He's not like from Ohio. He's from Georgia originally, but um, he's definitely made it his home. And um, it's good to see a Northeast Ohio guy doing the right thing. It's amazing to me how much all of this sounds like out of like, like it's pulled from like a really awful mafia movie. Like, <laughs> like this, like shaking people down, saying I'll never forget this, and you weren't there for me. Like, what was the other time he wasn't there for him? Like, I like I'm curious about that too. I you but, know we have to find that out. I'm not sure. It must have been some other bill he didn't support. Yeah, I don't know. Just it's like it, part of it's like cartoonish. You know, when you think back to like Demora and and that scandal, it's just like ah, they're just like. They're they're pulling all of what they're doing just from old wise guy movies, and it's just bad like, ones, right? Yeah, bad right. ones. Not, not they're not good fellas, like other awful ones. Like, yeah. well, and just think about it, Dave Greenspan. If he runs for a higher office, he could say, "Hey, I was the honest guy in the bribery scheme." <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty good thing to be able to do. Is anyway. that what voters care about right now, though? That's a that's a big actually, question. Laura. When I asked on subtext what people wanted discussed in the debate, I was surprised at the number of people that said, "I would love to hear the candidates talk about integrity and honesty." I think there are voters that are sick and tired of the lies and the deception, you know, almost the criminal activity. They do care about integrity. Uh, And for those voters, they now have (laughs) somebody to follow. Dave Greenspan, we salute you. It's this week in the CLE.
Did the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections follow up on one of its astounding errors involving poll worker applicants with yet another inexplicable astounding error involving poll worker applicants? Laura Johnston, this one just gets beyond me. I cannot believe the level of incompetence that we've seen this week from the Board of Elections. You know, what are we, five weeks away from Election Day? (laughs) Really not what you want to see. So, So bring us up to date. This began... When the Board of Elections sent out an email to people who had applied up to a thousand people saying, we don't need you. We're full up, even though they still need a thousand workers. So we reported that. Mm-hmm. Now, what's happened since? And, and it might even be more than a thousand. We don't know the total number. Right. So then I believe it was uh, Wednesday. They wait, sent wait, wait, the- wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you. How do you not know? I mean, we all have email. You go into your sent box and you count them. I mean, that's just another level of incompetence. How do you not know four days later how many damn emails you sent out? Go into your outbox, your sent box. (laughs) It's not rocket science, Board of Elections. Sorry. Go ahead, Laura. Okay. So we don't know how many they sent, but they did send another email on Wednesday. So I believe this was a day after the, or like, 12 hours after the the original email. It was quite a long time. They sent another email that said, uh, we acknowledge that you want to work for us and we'll be in touch. It was like a brief update. They never mentioned anything about their first error, but it turns out this was the original email they were supposed to send when they sent the wrong email saying thanks, but no thanks. Basically, this email... Email tells people to stand by. So consider, think about that from the perspective of the applicant. The applicant hearing that they have a dire shortage sends a note in saying, I want to be there. They get an inexplicable note back saying, yeah, we don't need you. The next day they get one saying, hey, hey, we got your application. We'll be in touch. What are you to think? I mean, right. you're going to be looking at that going, well, wait, do you need me? Don't you need me? There right, was exactly. N- and so then they sent a third email. And so Director Anthony Perlotti in this email acknowledged that the email sent Tuesday was erroneous and that they do need uh, applicants for jobs. He said, quote, our need for Election Day workers is still great, and we hope to have a job assignment for you within the next week. But it's it's bizarre to me that this happened because they knew they made a mistake. Then they made another mistake. And Perlotti couldn't tell reporter Courtney Astolfi why they made the second mistake. I mean, he couldn't explain the first mistake either. But he told his managers to acknowledge the mistake and clear up the confusion. And instead, they made it worse. Yeah, I just don't get it. And and to this moment, we still don't know how they did it. I mean, Chris Warnowski raised a great question. When we talked about this yesterday. Why did you even write the, the original email? You you need workers. Why would you have an email ready to go saying we don't need you? So that that's inexplicable fact number one. And right. then there's a, probably a half dozen other inexplicable right. And the thing facts. is, every single elections official in this state is saying, we don't want voters to be confused. We want this to be really simple. We want it to make sense. We want people to vote. And, and we want people to feel good about it. It. And it's just everybody is making it worse. Yeah, I, I, it'll be uh, what I'm I'm voting in person on Election Day. Even <laughs> want to do it more now just to see is, do we have enough workers or is it going to be a mess in part because of what they've done this close to Election Day? We should we should all put in like all the people who work for Cleveland.com, how we plan to vote, like which which process and see like who has the most success, just like unemployment <laughs> system. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What kind of messages will Donald Trump and any other visitors for the presidential debate see around Cleveland next Tuesday? Chris Ranaski, this is 
kind of a fun story, not for Donald Trump, but you got to like the wit that's being used here. What what are the messages and who's putting them up? Yeah, so a super PAC called Artists United for Change uh, is is doing a campaign basically everywhere the president goes by putting up billboards. The campaign's called Remember What They Did and hashtag vote them out. And, and the signs are, they sort of resemble, they sent us an example of one and, and it, it's the imagery is sort of pulled from the classic John Carpenter movie, They Live. Uh, if you remember the Obey portions of that movie, which is great. Uh, you should watch that. But, uh, this sign actually quotes the, uh, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, the uh, Jim Crow era thing that Donald Trump said uh, right around the time the, the George Floyd protests were were popping off. These billboards are going to be all around town and they're going to have various messages uh, related to the president. And uh, they're they're not they're not being nice, I guess, is the way <laughs> to put it, the polite way to put it. Um, so, yeah, they're going to they're going to be everywhere. Yeah, I, I wish they would have sent more. I mean, the the one image we saw of the one you you quoted, that's pretty dramatic. And yeah. you know, given what's going on in the country, given what's going on in Louisville, and given you know the Washington Post has a fully reported story today, basically portraying all of the things that Donald Trump has done to exacerbate racism in the country and his disparagement of black people and Jewish people. And and so so it's kind of a, a moment when this stuff is going up. I wish we would have had more examples, but I guess we'll have to look around as we drive about. Uh, I don't know how many of them the president will see because they'll fl- probably fly into Burke Lakefront Airport and go up the street to the debate uh, but people who are paying attention will see that. You're listening yeah. to This Week in the CLE. Who says Ohio is a red state? Do we have yet another statewide poll showing the presidential race in Ohio is a toss-up? Jane Cahoon, it's kind of remarkable. We have two polls that use two very different methodologies, and they came up with the same conclusion. They certainly did. You can't get much closer than this. Uh, this is a new Quinnipiac poll of Ohio likely voters that came out on Thursday afternoon um, on the heels of the Baldwin-Wallace Great Lakes poll that came out in the morning. The Quinnipiac poll has Biden ahead of Trump by one percentage point, 48 to 47. Uh, and the BW poll had Biden up by less than a percentage point, 44.9 to 44.3. And um, most people said their their minds were made up. So we have basically a toss-up here uh, according to these polls, in a state, Trump won by a healthy eight percentage points in 2016. Uh, one interesting thing is that we've talked before about the gender gap uh, in the support for Trump, and we did see it more so here in this Quinnipiac poll with women supporting Biden to a much greater extent and and men supporting Trump to a, to a much greater extent extent. Yeah, we've had that weird thing from Morning Consult, which is a very respected outfit that has shown the the women supporting Trump that none of I mean, basically it compromised the credibility of Morning Consult because none <laughs> of us believe that. So it's interesting to see to see this breakdown. So, well, yeah, well, the, the BW poll had a much narrower um, gender gap than than I think the Quinnipiac poll did. So, yeah, it's just hard to say what's going on there. 
Yeah, Laura and Jane, what's wrong with you guys, man? I mean, I would have thought <laughs> women would just be hey, offended. Hey. I, I was right. not surveyed. I was not surveyed. Were you, Laura? No, uh, no, of course I wasn't surveyed. But I didn't understand the same thing in 2016. So, I mean, there's some psychology going on at work. And I think, I mean, to not to get too deep into it, but it's this idea of of how women feel like their position in the world is. And I mean, you, you have to read a whole lot because the whole Hillary uh, Trump thing still gets me and I don't quite understand it, but yeah. Well, okay. and let's not Chris, this is Chris Wernowski. We can't let white men off the hook here. I mean, they white, <laughs> white Republican men overwhelmingly support Donald Trump and his bullish. Oh yeah. So why, why are we blaming yeah. them? <laughs> yeah. Why are you picking it's, on it's, us? It's, it's the, re, the reason men. we talk about white women, white suburban women is because they're gettable. The white men aren't. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's why it's such a key, a, a key demographic that they they're polling right now. Absolutely. Chris Ranowski, keeping us honest. Thank you very much. It's this week in the CLE. People with loved ones in nursing homes where 3,000 people have died from the coronavirus in Ohio received some long-awaited news Thursday. What is it? Laura, this is a big deal. We keep hearing from people that have been desperate for this news. What's finally going to happen? They're going to be start, able to start visiting indoors on October 12th. So this has been asked for for a long time. They've been allowed to have outdoor visits in nursing homes since June, but I imagine that must be really difficult for a lot of nursing home patients. So these visits, there are rules. They can only take place if they're scheduled in advance. They cannot last more than a half hour, and they have to be in designated visitation areas. No more than two visitors will be allowed at a time. Everyone has to wear masks, and they have to be socially distant. But the thing is, the facilities won't be required to allow indoor visits. And so we've heard a lot of complaints that the facilities themselves have said no, even if the state said yes. But uh, DeWine did say he believes that they won't stop people from visiting unless there's a good reason. I mean, they have to look at the outbreaks in their, within their walls and in the community at large because their, their number one goal is to protect the people that live there. Right. I mean, look, we were, I mean, we were too short, I think, of 3,000 in the last report. So I'm pretty safe to say 3,000 have died. And the, the nursing homes are cognizant of that. They've been the hardest hit. It's been simply tragic. But for all of the people who have mothers and aunts and relatives in nursing homes that haven't been able to visit them indoors, people that have to stay indoors, this has been a nightmare. It's been months of not seeing them. It's bad for the families. It's bad for the people in the nursing homes. It's bad for their brains. You know, so it's a, it's a big deal to finally be able to visit. I hope the nursing homes figure out a way to make it happen. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You've got to think that this could be really difficult. Like they're talking about, you know, designated visiting areas. But in some cases, you know, these people aren't getting out of bed. So I don't know how you make it happen. I mean, and you walk through a long hallways or you go in an elevator. It's it's not just like it's right inside the door. So they're going to have to be creative, probably. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Chris Warnowski, I'm calling an audible and I'm going to ask you a question that I did not send you ahead of time. If you trip over it, we'll work through it. But oh, man. what legal principle did the Ohio Supreme Court demonstrate with an episode of Breaking Bad and a pretty big groundbreaking ruling uh, that came out this week? Well, you, since you took me off guard, I'm going to take a second to look up the stories. <laughs> 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 you uh, edited the story. You own it. 
right? They, they basically threw out a rape trial uh, or rape conviction for a man who he, who he was convicted in 2016 of raping a woman uh, in a Cleveland hotel. And they said he deserves a new trial because he erred in letting a child who had previously accused the man of molesting her in an unrelated case testify in his new trial. And so this this 27-page opinion that was written by uh, uh, Justice R. Patrick DeWine basically says that there are, are specific limitations to um, what kind of evidence you can uh, illustrate from past crimes in, in a current trial. And so yeah, let, me, let me let me interrupt for a second. There, right. There's a general principle in criminal court that you cannot bring up past crimes right. when trying somebody for new charges because it heavily biases the jury. And there have been exceptions to that that and and in this ruling the Supreme Court said we feel like we need to give guidance to judges about it. Right. And and part of that guidance is sort of like a test of whether the previous crime has a link to the current crime, or if there's a sort of what they call, I think they call it a fingerprint, like something, something that sort of illustrates that this person has a, a significant pattern of committing the same crime over and over again. And to illustrate the first point of this, they actually used a very interesting hypothetical situation involving a very good episode of the uh, uh, 2008 episode of the uh, popular AMC television show uh, Breaking Bad, which uh, if you have not seen the series, uh, take your time. Uh, you got you got the whole pandemic to watch it. Um, <laughs> but they wrote that there was a there's an episode in of the series where the protagonist, Walter White, uh, and his accomplice, Jesse Pinkman, rob a chemical plant of chemicals needed to make methamphetamine. And DeWine wrote in the opinion that if someone was on trial on drug charges that accused them of manufacturing methamphetamine, quote, evidence that the defendant recently robbed a warehouse to steal a barrel of the ingredient uh, could be admissible to show that the defendant schemed to produce methamphetamine. So, you know, you could you could sort of link those two instances together. You wouldn't be able to not say, you know, look, we have evidence that this meth maker was stealing meth making materials, but under the old way you could, I mean, you could basically make an argument saying, Hey, 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 that meth, that chemical stealing, it has nothing to do with these current charges. So this all, this all raises the image in my head of Mike and Fran DeWine sitting with their son on a Sunday night, watching Breaking Bad like the rest of us. <laughs> Not something you see every day. And it right. is a well-done story by Corey Schaefer. Check it out on cleveland.com. He's going to be exploring some follows about how that principle has been applied in the past. It's this week in the CLE. Did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Senator Rob Portman actually break with President Donald Trump on the president's refusal to say he will accept the vote of the American people on his reelection bid in November. Jane Cahoon, the Republicans, the elected Republicans in this country have kind of been like lemmings when it comes to Donald Trump. He says outrageous things. They won't break with him. But on the election, all, from Mitch McConnell all the way down, you have seen a bit of aghast behavior. So what did DeWine say? And then, you know, what did Portman say? Well, both of them, yes, did push back in their own gentle way. Portman put out a couple of tweets 
pointing out that throughout American history, the peaceful transition of power has been a hallmark of our democracy and, and both candidates must commit to uh, abiding by the results no matter what the outcome. Of course, when I use the word gentle, I mean, he didn't mention Trump by name. And the fact that he called out both candidates, you know, saying they should abide by the results is a little weird since Joe Biden has not been saying he's not going to abide by the results of the election. It's President Trump who's saying he won't, you know, commit. Yeah, but for um, Rob Portman, that is like a sea change. I mean, that guy has been... staunchly behind every ridiculous thing Trump has said. So for him to, you know, even move a baby step in that direction is a big moment. It is something, although, you know, he wasn't alone, as you said, Mitch McConnell and other Republicans, you know, uh, gave him some cover on that issue. So it's not like he stuck his neck out as the only one. But yes, you're right. It was a step for him. And And the thing... The thing about DeWine was he clearly was prepared for the question when it came yesterday. That was not an off-the-cuff answer. So what did he say? It came during his Thursday briefing, and he was a little more forceful than Portman, I think. He, He To the idea of Trump not conceding if he loses, DeWine said, that is not going to happen. Whoever loses, once the votes are counted... It, you know, it's the the loser goes off the stage and that's the way it works. And um, he, too, you know, when they pressed him on it, like, well, are you going to condemn what the president said? He's like, no, I'm not going to uh, condemn anything. I don't know what's in his heart and mind and all that. And I, I should point out that he and Lieutenant Governor John Houston are co-chairs of Trump's campaign <laughs> in Ohio. So that might be a reason why he didn't want but- to directly go after him. But um Go ahead, Chris. I'm but sorry. it was, but I, but I, but I think he was pretty emphatic. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he, he, he said it much more strongly than I would have expected. That that it's been that way since the founding of the country. It'll be that way this time. And when he was asked to condemn it, he goes, "Look, when you're running for president, you fight and fight and fight." It's a, it, right. you know, he said, I, I'm, "I'm a lawyer. I like adversarial situations, but." That And he also said, and John Houston, the former secretary of state, backed them up, that in Ohio, it's going to be the voters who decide that this this nonsense about the Republican legislature negating the vote and picking their own electors. DeWine was pretty emphatic. That's not going to happen. Right. He he said it's going to be Joe Biden or it's going to be Donald Trump. You know, those of us, if we win, we'll be happy. If we lose, we lose. But but those who lose are going to have to accept it because that's what we do in America. And, you know, you brought up uh, Houston, too. Both he and DeWine really went out of their way to defend Ohio's election system you know, which is this counter messaging to Trump once again, this this tightrope they're having to walk because Trump's messaging is like, oh, all these absentee or mail-in ballots are a problem. And they really took pains to explain that, hey, we have a solid absentee voting system here. It's not been riddled with fraud. It works. It's tried and true. And um, just <laughs> one other funny thing, too. DeWine told this story that when he was a boy, he supported Richard Nixon for president. And that even though, you know, Nixon's advisors told him that Kennedy had cheated to, to win the election, that he he conceded anyway. So that was kind of funny. Yeah, just wait till Donald Trump gets a hold of what's going on with the Cuyahoga Board of Elections. We'll have a whole new <laughs> avenue of attack. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
What is Congressman Anthony Gonzalez doing to try and help college athletes finally get paid something? Chris Ranaski, our editorial board, actually endorsed Anthony Gonzalez in his reelection bid today. There's been a longstanding debate that everybody except the athletes in college profit from college athletics. It's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. So what's he doing? And we should point out he's a former college athlete. What's he doing to try and help out the athletes? Right. So he and and Warrensville Heights Democrat Marsha Fudge actually uh, co-sponsored a a bill that would uh, keep universities and sports conferences from banning as student athletes from playing because they've signed endorsement contracts unless those contracts tout, tout super cool products like tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, gambling or adult entertainment. So the schools could also block students from wearing branded clothing or gear during athletic competitions or university sponsored events. Uh, and these violations would be policed by the Federal Trade Commission. However, this does open it up for, you know, student athletes to finally actually be able to make some money while they're playing on these teams that you rightly pointed out. The NCAA does make a lot of money off of these uh, sporting events. So um, Gonzalez says that he he decided to introduce the legislation because California passed a similar law at the state level in 2019 that would let uh, state athletes uh, make endorsement deals. And what he believed was is that the, the law set up a very uneven playing field uh, between the states that uh, Congress needed to sort of address so student athletes don't base their college decisions on where they would make the most money. So, yeah, his bill would preempt uh, state laws and set a single national standard for that. And and the NCAA could not overrule it. This would this would compel the NCAA to allow it. This would finally give these athletes a chance to have some cash. Yeah, it's I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's people have sort of come around to this idea very quickly because, you know, you started to hear stories just about how, you know, how much a lot of these athletes are, were struggling, you know, to make ends meet financially, you know, just to eat meals and, 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 and do basic daily living things because, you know, of the, the way that this lack of pay structure was established and accepted over decades. And so, right. it, yeah. it was just hypocrisy. I mean, in, in so many ways, it was hypocrisy. The coaches are making millions and millions of dollars yeah. and the guys on the field and, and the guys, you know, the argument was, well, you know, they get rewarded if they do well, but it just right. in some it. respects, football coaches are some of the highest paid government officials in, in some States across the country. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet we're like, okay, you can't, you, you, these kids aren't going to be able to make enough money to eat. So, you know, it, it's, yeah, it does, it does remedy a very, uh, you know, a very huge inequity, I think, at the college level. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another week of this podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday to talk about another roundup of news stories.